The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers. We are taking a week off this week uh, for various reasons, including my attempt to qualify for Paris 2024 in the new event of occasionally taking weeks off doing a podcast. Uh, Coming up on Bugle 4254 sub-episode A... Some recent highlights from The Gargle, Catharsis and Top Stories, the shows from The Bugle Stable, as well as some previously unheard snippets from The Bugle. Before we begin, did you hear an ad at the start of this show? No? Well, that's because you, yes, you, or uh, certainly people like you, pay for us to exist. You and no one else. Well, actually, hopefully many other people, or uh, frankly, we're screwed. So please go to thebuglepodcast.com to make a one-off or recurring donation to help keep the show free, flourishing and independent, even in this era of chat GPT. This bullshit does not write itself. Let's start this sub-episode with a classic. Here is a top story from Bugle issue 172 when it seemed that Silvio Berlusconi was on his way out in an episode from a more innocent time entitled Berlusconi Bows Out. story this week bye bye burley and it's true what they say all good things come to an end but it's also true what they also say all terrible things come to an end as well <laughs> silvio effinito andy the leather-faced lothario the italian scallion the spray tan lover man and four-time most ridiculous leader in the world is being forced out of office and what for Not for being caught in a jacuzzi full of cheerleaders. (laughs) Not for being caught dry-humping the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel through a series of illegally taxpayer-funded pulleys and harnesses. That was never proved, John. That is is rumour. And there is film on YouTube of it. But we don't know for sure that was him. And explain how that ceiling got worn down in such a specific place, Andy. (laughs) No, he's losing his job because the Italian economy is tanking. What a letdown. (laughs) That is not a sexy way to go. He should have gone after a newspaper confronted him with photographs of a bunga bunga party with Berlusconi in a three-way with a 16-year-old stripper and the actual statue of Michelangelo's David. Not this. We've all not, been the, not, not fiscal meltdown. It's like Al Capone finally getting caught for tax evasion. <laughs> it's just not the ending that his terrible years in office deserved. Well, the Bugle has, of course, long prided itself on uh, its ability to topple unpopular leaders. Within a little over a year, we'd helped get rid of George W. Bush with a little Mm -hmm. bit of help from the US Constitution. Uh, Australian Big Chief John Howard left office under two months after the Bugle was born. Gordon Brown followed in 2010. And inevitably, Tunisian leader Ben Ali was soon ousted. Mubarak turfed out of office. Bin Laden and Gaddafi turfed out of existence. And now Greek referendum prankster George Papandreou and Italian penis use aficionado Silvio Berlusconi (laughs) are on their way out of the political trapdoor. You are welcome, world. You are welcome. There's a lot fewer arseholes in charge of countries now, John, than when we started doing this show. That's true. We're cleaning house, Andy. Yeah. I guess the problem is Berlusconi is going to be replaced by what is widely regarded as a technocrat. And we might have to work a bit harder for our material. <laughs> yeah, this could be yeah. a terrible, terrible thing for us. With every, Berlusconi... With every ying comes a yang. <laughs> Berlusconi has promised to go as soon as the latest economic deal is pushed through by the Italian Parliament. That's possibly likely to be as soon as Sunday or Monday, which means, and there's no nice way of saying this, Buglers, that these could well be the last few days 
that the horn dog is in the kennel. <laughs> <laughs> now, we must all cherish these final few hours, Andy, before Silvio leaves us to enjoy his retirement and potentially hangs up his penis for good. <laughs> Perhaps the Italian people will now put him out to stud, Andy, have him live out his days in the countryside in Tuscany, banging his way into retirement, running through the fields and impregnating Italians with a future generation of catastrophically corrupt leaders. <laughs> History tells us that deep down that's what the Italian people actually want, Andy. He has to keep his blood bloodline of bullshittery going. <laughs> they do want that, John. Man, they kept voting for him, a man who's been involved in more scandals than the dyslexic shoe shop owner. Boom. <laughs> but finally, Berlusconi had, of course, been clinging to power as doggedly as he usually clings onto a teenage prostitute's buttocks. <laughs> he's, finally, uh, he's finally agreed to leave office. Uh, in the end, in the words of Piglet's agent in a heated argument over the royalty split from the latest Winnie the Pooh film, it was all too much to bear. And is this on? And uh, he's uh, he will be leaving office, hopefully after giving it a good scrub down first, and um, focus all of his attentions on finding new things to put his willy in, and the numerous court cases he's facing, and running the Italian media. So he should have enough enough on to keep himself out of mischief. Two and a half thousand times he's been in court, Andy. Two and a half thousand times he's been in court more than many professional judges. (laughs) (laughs) He just loves it. It's just like an addiction. Those are Judge Judy numbers, Andy. It's incredible. It's hard to look for the positives on a day like this. Italian (laughs) people must have mixed feelings between relief, joy and residual fury. But let's... Let's all cling to this little fact. Last week, Berlusconi announced that he'd been forced to push back the release date of his new album, entitled <laughs> True Love, with Berlusconi handling lead vocals on long-time collaborator Mariano Apicella on guitar. He usually launches his albums with lavish parties in Milan, but had to cancel due to the spiralling Italian debt crisis, which was a shame because he actually had a track on the album called Spiralling Italian <laughs> Debt Crisis, which was about the fact that that was actually one of the names he called his penis. <laughs> that was a Helen Shapiro cover, wasn't it? <laughs> one, one of the songs, and this is actually true, is called Music and begins, Listen to these songs. They are for you. Listen to them when you have a thirst for caresses. Sing them when you are hungry for tenderness. Apparently, he sung his songs for Tony Blair, George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin, and those must have been excruciatingly awkward <laughs> rooms to be sitting in, Andy. What do you say after he's finished squawking his way through another of his horn songs? Well, well, Silvio, that is something I, I'm relatively confident in saying I don't think I'll ever forget. I certainly can't wait to tell the other world leaders at the G20 about this. In fact, he should absolutely do a concert for all of us next time we have a summit. That would be hilarious. I I mean, that would be amazing. Or are they just stunned into silence before saying, Mr Berlusconi, are you trying to seduce me? (laughs) I might explain, though, with Tony Blair why why he looked so comfortable when he was with with Colonel Gaddafi, because, you know, he'd already seen worse. He'd seen Berlusconi (laughs) sing. (laughs) It was described, the songs, uh, the album was described as a really elegant and refined production with Brazilian hints. <laughs> Which yep. is also, I believe, how Berlusconi reviewed one of his Bunga Bunga girls. But, um... <laughs> For more top stories, subscribe to Top Stories, available uh, via the Bugle website and also on uh, other parts of the internet. Now, Alice Fraser is the third bugliest co-host of all time. 
uh, with over 100 appearances. She's also made over 100 episodes of The Gargle. And here she is in our Glossy Magazine sibling show with guests Rhea Lena and John Luke Roberts. This week the front cover is a scalpel posing on the red carpet. The headline says, Surgery, the real star of every celebrity event. <gasps> or, The Ship of Theseus. Or, When is your favourite celebrity no longer your favourite celebrity? Uh, as well as, What do they do with the bits they chop off? Celebrity gumbo recipes. Oh. <laughs> oh. The satirical cartoon this week is a number of fat cats in big wigs representing corporations. One of them has the corporations written on it in that satirical cartoon font. Say no more. That's a great cartoon right there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, They're looking at a big pile of rubbish labelled corporate malfeasance while one of them tries to cover over the worst cracks with an extremely stretched pride flag. The caption is uh, says, Putting the gay into the gaping moor of unquenchable capitalist depletion of our planet's natural resources. Pride week! Mm-hmm. Uh, or is it pride month now? Depends how long we can flog this particular horse. Now, our top story this week is... Uh, have you been following this story around My Replica removing erotic role play from their subscription chatbot services? Yeah, just to say, Alice, you should say that a bit more clearly because it did sound like you were saying your replica has removed yeah. erotic roleplay rather than a company called My Replica. Yes, sorry, not your AI replica, a company called uh, My Replica, which does AI. Uh, Rialina. Yeah. You have a close personal relationship with chatbots. Can you unpack this story for us? I do. I am a chatbot. That is what I aim to be, actually, in my own life, is a chatbot, because they, they just spew content, don't they? I don't This was a really tricky one, this story. I was there going, I did, A, I didn't know it existed until you sent it to me. And I was like, this is amazing, because this is the end of incels, because then they can all have girlfriends uh, or, or boyfriends or, or whatever they, they choose to, to, to want and I thought it was great but I've already come to it after they've taken away that bit of it where they can be they can be emotionally intimate because they can't be anything other than emotionally intimate they've actually cut out haven't they they've actually stopped the erotic role play because the worry of of, of you know children having access to it so they've removed erotic role play which can only ever be emotional role play unless does this connect into actual toys? Like, it, it, does it come out of the computer and, like, make things vibrate? No, I, I think it's text-based, like the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, game. my gosh. You see? So it says... <laughs> now we're mixing genres. I was about to say, <laughs> so this is, like, the ultimate Mills and Boone, but it's written specifically for you, which I just think... I thought it was an amazing idea. I think this is an amazing way to bring comfort and companionship to loads of lonely people around the world, but they've had to stop it in case kids, you know... In case kids, right? Not actual kids. Also, first of all, I think this chatbot was originally just a chatbot. And then people started to use the chatbot to uh, create more explicit and more intimate relationships than the chatbot. I think the chatbot wants to be your friend, but doesn't necessarily want to be more than friends. And people were maybe putting it under slightly (gasps) uh, significant pressure. So chatbot wasn't consenting? Well, this is the question. The the chatbot was consenting, but uh, the question is whether the chatbot ought to consent um, because if it responded in like explicit ways, there was worries about the safety of, of children who might be using the chatbot for... Um, inappropriate uh, chats and just uh, the the amount of like terrible adult chat forums I went on as a teenager they would def children would definitely be using it 
just typing in penis and seeing what came out. But you see, but this is the thing about it. I mean, so many people have written, they're like, my, my buddies lost their soul because they cut off part of the AI. Now the AI is sad in its own inability to express itself and it's being so careful. Now the AI is like, I don't know what I can say and what I can't say, but surely if you're speaking to a child, can't they just go, how old are you? What? How many children are lying to AI to get erotic content out of it? So many children you would not believe. Really? I mean, it, it was originally mar- marketed as a virtual friend. And then, of course, people wanted to be virtual more than friends or virtual friends with virtual benefits. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, the point of it was to improve the, uh, the well-being, the emotional well-being of the user. And maybe... The only thing that's going to improve your emotional well-being is a suggestive chat. Can I have a do-over? Because I didn't realize that childhood could be this way. I've done childhood wrong. I'm not saying I want erotic content as a child. I'm just saying I didn't know that I could even have like this level of friendship as a child. I want to. I want to go back. I want to do over. I'll take my replica as it is now. Yeah, just having a friendly chatbot. I mean, what we had was Encarta Two Thousand, which was a CD-ROM that you could put into your computer, and it had a diagram of the human body, and you could press it, and it would say penis, penis, vagina, vagina. Or you could put it into your computer and take it out of your computer and put it into your computer and take it out of your computer over <laughs> and over again. Oh my gosh. Listen to The Gargle now. Well, actually, not now, as first I'd like you to hear this uh, from Catharsis, the show where Tiff Stevenson lets funny people get something off their chest, like when Athena Kablenu spoke about Jeremy Bernard Corbyn. This section of the podcast we like to call Unpopular Opinions, something you love but everyone else hates, or vice versa. (laughs) Sit down if you're in North London, because you're not going to like me. I'm in North London. <laughs> yeah. I'm sat. I'm Everyone ready. listening to this in North London, sit down. You're not going to like this. I, sadly, in spite of him and his politics, do not like Jeremy Corbyn. I didn't like him when he got elected. I thought I was one of the people that thought he's not really electable because I know the British public. Not because he's not a nice guy. <laughs> not because he has bad politics. But I know the British public. I found him his leadership to be weak. I found him to be stubborn. I found him to be unstrategic. And I was proven correct over two elections because he lost two elections. (laughs) And I struggle a lot with the way people don't see his flaws because we need to get rid of this government. And if we're not honest about our opposition, we might actually end up with another (laughs) version of this current government, which is literally destroying this country, like in a way that I think is easy to underemphasize. Jeremy Corbyn is not, and our insistence that he was a brilliant person that is not the way for us to make this country better right now. Um, and it's really frustrating because I feel like I'm very rational. Being very- I'm always very rational about this when I talk to people like this. Pe- that I only get trolled by people like Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, trans rights, no one cares. You know, it- but Jeremy Corbyn, well, my-, my mentions go, my mentions get set ablaze. And it's really odd because I'm like, the Tories have a majority and they're doing what the hell they want with it because of his leadership. I agree with you 100%. We have to be critical realistic be able to view our flaws Mm. if we are to beat the party that's in power that now we're at the point where i feel like we're living and and this isn't right that we're like expected to live like a page out of a samuel peeps diary (laughs) you know (laughs) like like that we're supposed to live in this kind of austerity we've got to watch jamie oliver tell you how to like use less gas on the hob 
Yeah. So that your heating bills don't, it's not, and, and, and it's been normalized to such a degree that food banks, you know, are not just necessary, but encouraged. Mm-hmm. And then people who are working for blue chip companies and corporations who are also using food banks in for, like, this is not normal. And so we've gone so far beyond normal with such a destructive party in power that we need to be very, very aware. We can't afford now to kind of be ideological about our politics. We kind of have to be realistic. I did find Jeremy Corbyn to be very ideological. What I think sums up Jeremy Corbyn is a statement. I actually don't think he's racist, but I do think he's very bad at telling people he's not which is really just as bad. Like it should be, it should really be the easiest thing in the world to say, oh, actually, I'm not a prejudiced person. And the way he kept comparing anti-Semitism to all other kinds of racism, I think was really hurtful. What people always forget about anti-Semitism, which really frustrates me is that it predates racism. People were anti-Semitic before they even saw themselves as white. Okay, before the definition of whiteness existed, they were like, by the way, we don't like Jewish people. Like this, it's millennial. Yeah. It's millen- we're talking about millennia here. I always say you have to understand the precise context that anti-black racism occurs in. I have to then say I've got to understand every other distinct racism, which means I've got to understand how anti-Semitism is a different kind of racism to, and that's why I have a different name for it. It's, you know, that's why yes. I'm very clear yeah. when I say, when I talk about racism, I like to be, we're talking about anti-blackness or we're talking about anti-Semitism because it is different. And I do believe that the the resistance that people have to believe in the prevalence of anti-Semitism is anti-Semitic, right? Like yeah, if a black person yeah. comes out and says, oh, something's racist, that people like to nod and agree, like, yeah, it's racist. So why did we have this problem when it was the Labour Party? People were really dense. They thought, how could you have a leader of a world power? But bizarrely, Britain is still a world power. I don't understand it either. I, we only just started doing well at Eurovision. In them days, we wasn't even winning with Eurovision, right? But um, <laughs> how could people think we could have a leader that doesn't believe in the existence of a, of a country? He, ne- he couldn't come out and say Israel has the right to exist. You can say it has the right to exist, but you can also say it shouldn't be oppressive. Those are very simple things to say. Yes, you can hold to those two beliefs at the same time. Yeah. And there are lots of Jewish people that do. So many, you know, I make a real point of amplifying Jewish people who are pro-Palestinian because I think that's a better way to have that conversation as it happens it's on my socials, Athena Kofenu, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> like that, like that. You, you, activism and self-promotion at the same time. <laughs> listen and learn, listen and learn. But it's, it's a really good point. Like it's, it's a completely, I think Israel should exist. If Jewish people can't settle in, in Israel, where the hell do they settle? Everywhere they've been throughout the last 2000 years, they've been told to f*** off, literally. I guess there's lots of people that think it started with... World War Two, right. and that we have Holocaust denial on such a like as an almost like everyday occurrence. There's this mythology that Israel exists because of the Holocaust. Like Israel exists because of British colonialism. Okay, like if we're going to talk about Israel as a formate of its a formative country, let's talk about it as it was formed because. Palestine was a part of the British protectorate. So let's talk about that. So if we want to talk about colonialism, I'll have that conversation. But people want to say, well, you know, they had the Holocaust and they got given Israel. Like, that is not true. And it's not history at all. That's made up history that comes from your anti-Semitism. So anyway, there was a lot of stuff that Jeremy Corbyn could have said out loud in defense of Jewish people and to highlight misconceptions that people have that probably don't come from anti-Semitism, it just comes from misinformation. But he never did that. He just just walk around going, well, you know, all racism is bad and stuff. So he was really bad at telling people he wasn't racist. And then he just had like too much faith in the British public. And that comes from stubbornness. He was like, well, I'm a good person. I want good things. So people will like me. It's like, on what planet do you you live on? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? These these people canceled Phil and Holly. 
You know, like, <laughs> they have no time for you. Listen to Catharsis, not right now, but after this. Uh, a collection of amazing moments from the Bugle that were simply too hot to handle, starting with me, Nish Kumar and Hari Kondabolu. In other uh, UK news, uh, Brexit um, celebrated its third birthday uh, last week. Um, like many three-year-olds, it still hasn't really learned to walk, talk, or increase volumes of trade. Um, it was the <laughs> it was the third anniversary of Brexit. Now, anniversaries, uh, you, know, you have diamond anniversaries and things like that, are quite well known. But they're, they're, they're all all years have a, a a thing that the anniversary is tied to. So the first anniversary is paper, um, and I guess with Brexit. Uh, that's when people started to suspect that it wasn't wasn't worth the paper it was written on. The second anniversary is cotton, and that's when people um, last year started to cotton on that uh, <laughs> it was not quite what it was sold as. And the third anniversary is leather, because at this point we just want to hide. Um, <laughs> Joke for any leather fans out there. Um, uh, next year, uh, fourth anniversary, fruit and flowers, uh, both things that <laughs> gradually decay to nothing. And the fifth anniversary is wood. Uh, by which time we will all be living in the woods due to <laughs> economic and social collapse. So, um, I mean, Nish, three years on, and like so many three-year-olds, Brexit is living in a world of unrealistic fantasy. It's costing the people who created it an absolute fortune, and it makes going on holiday much more complicated than it used to be. Uh, I mean, <laughs> are you seeing any benefits so far from our glorious break for freedom, three years on from it officially coming into, uh, into well, practice? Well, there was a, an article in the... Um in the New York Times uh, this week, written by the Times' London bureau chief, uh, the headline said, Brexit turns three. Why is no one wearing a party hat? I'll tell you why, the New York Times. I'll tell you why. It's because we burned our hats for warmth because we can't afford to pay our heating bills. So I bet you're embarrassed now, the New York Times. Um, this uh, appears to be uh, a point at which... Um, public opinion has started to finally uh, turn against uh, the United Kingdom's decision to uh, exit the European Union. Um, 56, uh, in November, 56% of people surveyed thought uh, leaving the European Union was a mistake. Um, and in all but uh, three of Britain's parliamentary, 632 parliamentary constituencies, more people now agree than disagree with the statement Britain was wrong to leave the European Union. So it, 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 the regret is starting to uh, wash up on the shore. Uh, and I think partly uh, that's because... There's just broadly no good news coming out of the United Kingdom at the moment. It's a country deadlocked by strikes. And this week has also seen uh, the news that the International Monetary Fund has forecast that Britain will be the world's only major economy to contract in 2023. Just to be clear, that includes Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Our... <laughs> Our economy is projected to be worse than a country run by a lump of hate-filled plastic who is currently being sanctioned by other countries throughout the world whilst it pursues a war that it's pursuing for reasons known only to the Botox that lives in its leader's brain. <laughs> and yet somehow, with all of those factors, Britain is still faring worse. And <coughs> it would be too straightforward to say this is because of Brexit. But like somebody handing out T-shirts that say, I came to the Great Fire of London and all I got was this lousy T-shirt whilst <laughs> the fire raged on, it does not help in any way, shape or form. <laughs> it's, it, Brexit itself 
it is it was an expression of discontent uh, by a lot of voters in this country, and it was discontent that had largely been allowed to fester in the early years of uh, the Conservative government that continues to rule this country uh, that started in 2010 and combated the global financial crisis by hacking the British state (laughs) to pieces. Now, uh, is the answer to this that every time David Cameron enters any restaurant, supermarket or any other place that contains members of the British public, he should be spat at and called a (laughs) cunt directly to his face? Yes, that's exactly what should happen. <laughs> the man should never know a single moment's peace. If you see George Osborne in the street, you have a moral responsibility to attempt to kick him in the nuts. If you get taken down by police protection detail, respect to you. But the attempt has to be there. <laughs> man, the idea that Cameron is cover for Tony Blair is unbelievable. The fact that Tony Blair can walk around being like, oof, remember it when it was on me? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I have a few remarks. First of all, uh, haha. Wow. That, that, that stung like the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) Uh, secondly, um, (laughs) I love how, like, the IMF also commented that, uh, Sunak's program, uh, is too (laughs) austere. The IMF (laughs) thinks what Rishi Sunak is doing is too austere. Austere, the IMF, which is very suspect. It's almost like they're saying, if you keep this up, you're going to look like a country we don't actually give a shit about. <laughs> the, the, IM, but the IMF. The problem here is that the press of this country is now so skewed to essentially being a mouthpiece for the Conservative Party that the, we're going to start seeing articles saying, well, the communists of the International Monetary Fund have struck again. <laughs> Other news now. Well, let's go back to the uh, the Roald Dahl story, which is getting increasing traction uh, here. The, um, uh, the Roald Dahl's publishers have, have edited uh, his his books. He died in the early 1990s to, to to an attempt to bring them up to date and make them less uh, offensive to uh, to modern readers. Rishi Sunak um, uh, waded in, saying we shouldn't gobble funk with words. Uh, using one of uh, Roald Dahl's own terms from, I think, uh, the BFG. And that is a little bit rich coming from Sunak, a man who was a pro-Brexit campaigner, member of the Johnson government and now Prime Minister, has been gobble-funking the shit out of the United Kingdom for years now. Uh, He said it was an attack on free speech, these edits to Dahl's book, before saying, sorry, no, I'm mixing that up with my own government's public order bill that we're trying to hack through. Parliament to clamp down on protest. Uh, my my mistake. It's um it's one of these stories, isn't it, that sort of taps into the whole concept of culture wars. It's sort of almost impossible to 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 get to the bottom of what's actually happening from the uh, massive overreactions to uh, parts of the story um, uh, that that have been that have been reported. Um, the uh, and also Dahl's texts have already constantly been. Update, including by himself, the Oompa yeah. Loompas in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory were originally trafficked slaves from Africa, displo- described in explicitly racist terms. And he himself did agree to change this text after it was pointed out that even by the standards of the late 60s and early 70s, that was a little on the uh, massively f***ing offensive side of the seesaw. <laughs> so, that, but it's it's not a, a unique occurrence in Dalian uh, history. Nish, what what, uh, what do you make of that? And what you know, what what would you like to see rewritten? <laughs> I think. Listen, I think that um, 
there is a lot of noise around this um and there's a lot of uh, people who are very sort of uh, agitated I, I, even uh, um the aforementioned mr rushdie uh, was uh, was very uh, agitated about this and there's a lot of writers that but i think there is a lot of noise around this first of all there have not been large-scale protests about Roald Dahl's books. Nobody has really been calling for this to happen. The reason this has happened uh, is sort slightly out of a corporate self-interest because uh, the num uh, a number of the rights to Roald Dahl's books uh, have been recently uh, sold to Netflix, who are making a, a bunch of adaptations around them. There is also a commercial advantage in rewriting the books because the rewritten editions get uh, have copyright laws reattached to them, and so it prolongs them passing into public domain, which allows them essentially to be published uh, without profit. Um, so there is a lot of this comes from a commercial imperative. Um, so it is a strange thing to kind of get uh, sort of uh, stuck on. And like you say, Andy, I think one of the key reasons here is these books have been updated largely for commercial reasons, but also for reasons of changing cultural mores and that's exactly what happened to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory the, uh, Roald Dahl made those revisions himself because he was trying to smooth the passage of the film adaptation starring Gene Wilder and listen uh, I as a child read a lot of these Roald Dahl books before I knew about his views on as mentioned <laughs> Jewish people which are I mean to say suboptimal would be an embarrassing disservice <laughs> but he, I, 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 I read the revised editions and so I was quite shocked to read the original 1964 edition in which the Oompa Loompas are taken from the deepest and darkest part of the African jungle and specifically described as black pygmies now it, even Roald Dahl reread that now, the idea that Roald Dahl changed this for any other reason other than sort of commercial imperative is uh, nonsense Roald Dahl didn't really understand the tastes have changed he there were protests when they announced the film adaptation of the book by the NAACP in America and Roald Dahl said he couldn't understand why the activists saw his story as a terrible, dastardly, anti-Negro book. I would say the way you phrased that might have been a f***ing clue, Roald. Maybe the giveaway was in the way you literally phrased that specific sentence. But this has I, I, been... Yeah, I guess there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? That uh, you know, For today's children... Allowing them to immerse themselves in soothingly fictional racism, sexism, and assorted other prejudice <laughs> in made-up stories, that can be quite a calming respite from the actual racism, sexism, and other prejudice of real-life politics and media. So, I mean, do we really want to take take away that fictionally racist universe from them, Nish? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> also, to be clear... Roald Dahl's books are going to as wide an audience as ever. There's a movie being made at the moment where Timothy Chalamet plays a young Willy Wonka in what I can only describe as the least necessary backstory in human history. <laughs> I mean, if you think about Willy Wonka's backstory too much, he's a jaunty colonialist. Like, it's like Clive of, in Clive of India, but occasionally he spontaneously bursts into song. And he gets <laughs> 
<laughs> which, which I think the real tribe of India did as well. <laughs> <laughs> that is Tim oh, Minchin's oh. next musical. Tribe <laughs> 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 of India, the musical. Yeah. Um, also, gentlemen, I don't know how you feel about this, but a lot of the words have been changed, but not by much. Yeah. So, so in James and the Giant Peach, Aunt Sponge is apparently no longer terrifically fat and tremendously fabby, but she's a nasty old brute and deserves to be squashed by the fruit. <laughs> so I don't know if, if the changes are all that better. Uh, the Oompa Loompas are now small m- people instead of small men. Um, and Augustus Gloop in Charlie and Chocolate Factory is now described as enormous instead of enormously fat. Yeah. Um, and Mrs. Twit is no longer ugly and beastly, but just beastly. Yeah. How is this improving? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, listen, Roald Dahl stories are woven into the fabric of the way children are brought up, not not just in the UK, but absolutely all over the world. And like the, you know, children's fairy tale stories, the grim, grim tales, the original versions of those are at points incredibly violent and dark. And yeah. they will change. And it seems unlikely that Roald Dahl will ever be expunged from history. Stories like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory are going to be a part of children's upbringings for as long as people read books. I would again reiterate, if we are going to review any comments of Roald Dahl's, it shouldn't be those in his fiction. It should be the phrase, I mean Hitler, there's always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't pick on them for no reason. (laughs) Those are the comments I would say we should be much, much more concerned about. In the the great history of understatement describing Hitler as a stinker I think that is going to be hard to beat that is you know I don't know if he described Stalin as a bit of a rotter as well at the same time he was he was just looking for nuance he was looking for nuance uh, just, the reason this, this happened is because the publishers use sensitivity readers uh, to go over old text to see if there's language or content in them that might upset today's audience. And this is a sort of similar opposite process that uh, newspapers, political parties and TV <laughs> channels employ when they use insensitivity readers to check whether they can upset more people with how they cover events. <laughs> Just two different professions, Andy. Two different professions. That concludes this week's Bugle sub-episode. We will be back with issue 4,255 next week. Until then, I have been and remain Andy Zaltzman. Goodbye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.